You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Modern Web Podcast. My name is Dustin Goodman, Engineering Manager at the Stat Labs, and we're really excited to talk about modernizing enterprise React applications with my co-host, Jan Bacardi, architect here at the Stat, and our amazing guests, Paige Niedringhaus and Mark Erickson. Paige is a co-host of the React Roundup podcast, an engineer at Blues Wireless, and author of the Modernizing React Apps course on Newline. You can find Paige on Twitter at P N I E. Oh, how do you even pronounce that? Sorry. <laughs> do you have a suggestion, Paige? Sure. I mean, it's P Nidri. It is a combination of my first and last name. I wish I could change it at this point, but I can't because it's Twitter. So. I just chalk that up to being too young when I chose that screen name. <laughs> Perfectly fine. And then we also have Mark, who is a maintainer of Redux and enjoys writing, and to quote from his resources, uh, very long posts. Uh, you can find Mark on Twitter as uh, AceMark, uh, Mark with an E. Um, before we get started, though, uh, we want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, uh, The Harmon. Uh, the Harmon Ignite Store Developers Portal is a developer hub dedicated to the Android automotive developer community. The portal provides developers the toolkits and APIs they need to create apps and influence the future of the in-vehicle experience. Check them out via ignitedevelopers.harman.com. Paige and Mark, how are y'all doing today? I'm doing great, Dustin. Not too bad. Well, we're so glad to have y'all here. Um, I mean, I think this whole conversation we were just talking uh, sprung from a Twitter post because, Paige, you just recently posted a new course on Newline about React enterprise applications or modernizing React apps. There we go. Uh, I'm flubbing already. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your course and like what sprung this conversation? Sure. So I was approached by Newline probably about nine months ago now, and when they approached me about writing a course or a book or something for them. It was really a conversation about what I had been doing for the Home Depot at that point. And I've been with Home Depot for about four and a half years when the conversation first started. And what I had learned was that we had started off with an Angular application and built it to a point where it was large, it was complex, it was very hard to maintain. And when that point had come and long-term support had dropped off for that particular version of Angular, my team faced kind of a decision point of either go towards React or upgrade to Angular 2 or 4. Um, so we decided to go with React because the backwards compatibility in particular was very appealing since Google did not do the same thing for Angular. And I had learned over the course of the next two and a half, three years just how much goes into an enterprise application. And when we started with React, we had classes. We did not have functional components. We didn't have hooks at that point. So we started and built the best that we could. And then hooks came along and we started incorporating those into our application. And so we kind of learned as we went how to both refactor existing pieces of our application to use hooks, how to 
use hooks in new pieces and components, how to switch from Jest and Enzyme to Jest and React testing library when that became the new de facto standard for unit testing. Uh, we started incorporating design libraries like Ant Design to make our designs easier to replicate and keep consistent across different applications. We started using Cypress for our end-to-end -end testing. So it really was all of those pieces that I had learned along the way, but condensed down into a course that somebody who maybe hadn't had all this experience and that gone through the trials and tribulations that we did uh, could see all the different things that went into it. And so it took me about eight months. Uh, it took 10 modules, 54 lessons, and about 10 and a half hours worth of content that is actually the entire course that's now available on New Line. And then I was finally able to release it into the world and hopefully start helping people and, and showing them all the stuff that goes into it, because it's a whole lot more than just writing code and hoping that it continues to work in production. That's really awesome. And congratulations on releasing a course. I mean, that's a lot of effort and energy. I can't say I've done anything of that level. Uh, Mark, <laughs> Jay, either of you, can you speak to that? <laughs> oh, I, I've done the work um, in terms of like, this reminds me a lot of what I did at my time at Find My Past in the past six years, which was um, a lot of uh, modernizing from Angular and .NET onto React, and then the whole process of, well, now you have a React app. And now you have to to get that running, and as it and deal with all the problems inherent in scale of an enterprise scale app and testing and architecture and trying to incorporate all of the the things like new versions of Webpack, new patterns that scale applications better, like learn a monorepos going into Yarn workspaces. But it's great because you know when I was doing it, there was no guide. It's not something that you tend to find in courses and tutorials. You know, there's a lot of like, how do you start? How do you make a blog? But not a lot of this. Well, how, how do you maintain a large enterprise application throughout multiple years of existence? Yeah, Kyle Shevlin had a good post on Twitter not too long ago where he said that the vast majority of learning content out there is geared toward beginners because mm -hmm. a those are by far the biggest audience and it's also the easiest content to write like it it takes experience to know what those kind of real world patterns are in the first place to even be able to say anything about them and there are fewer people who have hit the level where they're interested in that content so it that's why you see lots of how do I get started writing React and much less, well, we've been dealing with this code base for five years, now what? <laughs> yeah, and that's really what it seemed like was missing because we already had an existing React application by the time Hooks came along, but all the tutorials out there were, okay, take the newest version of Create React app, we start off with Hooks, we start off with TypeScript, we start off with all this great starter code, but how do you take a, a class-based component and refactor it into using hooks. Those are the kind of things that my team was struggling with. And there wasn't a whole lot of content available for us to kind of lean on and say, okay, you know, as I'm getting really confident or comfortable with how use effect works, how would I take this component that has component did mount and did unmount and make that 
into, you know, one or more use effect hooks. And that's the kind of thing that nobody really talks about, but a lot of people are going to encounter because legacy code bases, especially at really large scale corporations are just kind of the norm. Greenfield development is very hard to come by actually. I was going to say, I so I just got to finish a great project with the React team redoing the docs. And that was actually something that Rachel uh, was very uh, adamant about as we were redeveloping the Hook API pages. It was like, hey, how do we make sure that uh, when I'm looking at a hook, I actually understand what its anatomy is. And so we actually came up with these really nice code diagram components. Uh, <laughs> Mark knows what I'm talking about. If y'all haven't checked it out yet, it's uh, we, we worked with Code Sandbox to develop this and it's, um, it's a Code Sandbox code view using Code Mirror. Uh, and you can actually click into it and kind of dissect the anatomy through the kind of commentary that's provided alongside it. And then they do really good uh, challenges and code snippets along the way but it was this i don't know super fun way of being like man use effects really complex what what am i actually doing uh because i remember my first time picking up react i was like man what are all four of these life cycle five wait was it five life cycle hooks back in the day and then all of a sudden hey react 16 they're all deprecated and then it was like i just learned these come on guys <laughs> so I think that comes up with a great question. Like, what did you decide to do in terms of like the course material? Like, how did you gear such a complex topic and like really help somebody? Because I mean, it sounds like you were gearing it towards people who were coming from Angular, going to React, and then not only coming to React from a completely different framework, but a new kind of version of React that was completely different than its predecessors. So my course in particular was definitely not for the React beginners. It was for more people who were familiar with React, but maybe not up to date with the latest and greatest that React had to offer. So maybe they were working in legacy code bases and they knew about classes. They understood the unidirectional state flow of React. Maybe they were using something like Redux or Flux or something for state management. But really what I wanted to do was kind of give them um, a process that was easily repeatable and so you could, you know, the idea that you can just stop development and rebuild an application from the ground up and it'll be great is a is just not going to happen in the real world 95% of the time. You know, our product managers, when we were saying we need to migrate off of Angular to React in the first place, were very much of the opinion of how do we do this so that we can still continue adding new features for our users and continue pushing this project forward while you do the necessary technical debt refactoring and building this new app. So it was it was a real a, a better example of how you might go about this in the real world, which is when you come to maybe an older class component that's in your React application there are some steps that you can take to refactor it then. But if you're not going to ever touch that component again and it's class-based, then don't worry about it. Just leave it. It's fine. It runs. It's backwards compatible. React is good with it. Just let it go. Same thing for updating unit tests. If you've got stuff that's using hooks, then go ahead and start using Jest and React testing library. But if you have some enzyme tests in there and they're not hurting anything and you don't need to update them, don't bother. Just you know, it all com combines into one giant config file and gives you the coverage report and everything is happy. But 
if you don't have to touch it and it's not going to be upgraded or updated in some way, just leave it alone. It still, it still works. And that's the main thing at the end of the day is does the application work and can the users do what they need to do? And can the development team build on as they need to is really what it kind of boils down to is refactor as you go, but don't refactor unnecessarily, I guess. The end user isn't going to care what framework your UI was built in. Exactly. Yeah. Also, like one of the top ten rules of engineering is to, if it ain't broke, don't, don't change it. It's <laughs> exactly it. So that was more about how the course tried to position itself. Is you know the basics, but maybe you haven't really gotten to play with the latest and greatest. So let's see how we can you know upgrade the React scripts that we're using, upgrade some and refactor some existing components so that we keep the functionality the same, but we're now using the new techniques and then add some new testing. I showed off some of the new stuff that Cypress is offering like Cypress Studio, where you actually can click through the DOM and then Cypress will record those actions and write the test based on the steps that you show it. So just some, some cool things that we ended up doing as a result of trying to keep up to date with what was happening in the industry, which doesn't happen a lot of times once apps get into legacy or apps are just old to begin with and tech debt is not really a thing that the development team gets a chance to address. Absolutely. I think we've all probably seen that more than once or twice this year alone, I bet. Uh, <laughs> but in our careers, probably several times. Uh, Always love the coming back to the constant conversation. How are we going to deal with that debt? Well, probably not this year. <laughs> Kick it down the road. Yeah, it's it's unfortunately kicked the can a little bit. Well, much like much like government debt, if you never have to pay it off because the interest rate is very low, it's fine. <laughs> well, I know that Mark in particular was has been working on migrating from Angular to React. So, Mark, I'd love to hear more about how you organized that and did you do something similar to what my team did where it was like okay what screens can we move easily and what ones do we need to you know maybe do some background microservices or extra work to be able to migrate them to the new framework sure um it's it's interesting because I was actually thinking about it this morning. I, I started learning React in like the summer of 2015 uh, right actually right about the same time Redux came out and Looking back across the last few years, I think I've spent way more time migrating other code bases to React than I have writing new features or functionality. Um, I, I had written a Google Web Toolkit app back in 2011 and 12. Uh, I worked on a Backbone app from 13 through 16. And my first real React and Redux experience was actually trying to migrate that GWT app uh, to React and Redux. Uh, I was mostly working on it by myself at the time, and I, I ended up having an extended period of time where I was able to just recreate the client for that app from scratch. Uh, we, we had some downtime, and I was able to focus on that. Uh, in 2017 and 19, I, uh, I kind of helped my team do a bunch of work on migrating uh, that Backbone app over. And then in 2020, I got moved over to this uh, internal metrics dashboard, which 
had been written as a standard classic Angular one mean code base. In fact, I think I think the the repository itself was a clone of like the the GitHub slash mean slash mean repository. I'd managed to avoid ever working with Angular anything in my career. <laughs> I wasn't thrilled about this, um, but it it was where I ended up, and. Even like as I was accepting the position of taking over from the previous team lead, like they told me it was legacy Angular one, and that I would have free reign to change anything that I felt was necessary. Um, and ironically, I I joined the team, I spun up my development environment, and you know was asking the the outgoing team lead a whole bunch of questions about what does this app even do, what are the areas <laughs> of the code base, and the very first thing I noticed was that basically none of the tooling had been updated since the project was started at like the beginning of 2017. Uh, it was still running on like node six, NPM three. Uh, it was still using Bower for the client side dependencies. Uh, all the client side files were organized as iffy modules. There was no common JS, no AMD, no ES modules. Uh, and that actually meant that you really couldn't even easily use any NPM libraries in the client side code unless they were like declared like imported and then accessed as globals. Um, and on top of that, like loading a single page proceeded to download, I think it was like 250 separate requests for individual JS files and Angular 1 HTML templates. Now, I'd been spending my time over in React land. I was used to either having create React app or a nice Webpack config and having you know good bundles and everything. And so the very, very first thing I did when I joined this team and I, and I saw the way the build thing was set up was I'm going to swap out all the build tooling, even though I don't know how any of this project works yet. <laughs> and I was looking at it like, okay, I'm reasonably familiar with Webpack and Babel. I can I, I know how to configure stuff. I really don't want to write one from scratch, though. Huh? You know, Create React App has a whole Webpack config. And the problem, and it occurred to me, I could hijack Create React App and get it to build a legacy Angular One code base. Now, for those of you who have ever worked with Create React App, it is a very opinionated Webpack config it requires that you have all your source code in a folder called source. It requires that you have a folder called public that contains your index.html host page. It refuses to compile any JavaScript outside of your source folder. But, and, and it doesn't, out of the box, it doesn't offer any way to modify that config. It's meant to be black box and abstract the process from you, which is great, except when you actually want to change things. <laughs> so there are community built tools that will let you override parts of the Webpack and Babel config for create React app. And I've used them a number of times myself. So I started digging in and it's like, okay, well, the, the source code for the client is all in a modules folder where it's like modules slash features A, B, C, D, each with a client folder nested inside. That's totally not a source folder. And for that matter, I think the 
some of the some of the static files and whatnot were already in a folder called public or buried somewhere else. Basically, I had to go in and rewrite the guts of the Webpack config to look for all the JavaScript files in completely different places. Uh, the Create React app was bailing out. It had a couple internal precondition checks where if it couldn't find the right file in the right place, it would exit. And I ended up having to override those too. But to my surprise, it actually worked out. Like within about a week or so, I actually had this thing compiling the Angular app, producing nice, decent vendor and application chunk bundles. And like the number of requests on a page load dropped to like, you know, three JavaScript files, a few CSS files, and a handful of images. Uh, I still had no idea what the rest of the application did, but I was able to kind of like Jenga style swap out the bottom row and get the build tooling swapped out. And that actually unlocked a whole lot of future opportunities, like starting to write React components that attached themselves inside the legacy Angular UI and writing them in TypeScript. That's a pretty amazing feat right there. <laughs> That's a lot of digest too. Broke my brain, Mark. That sounds I, like such a Frankenstein. <laughs> it is, it is, but it works. Uh, as as usual, I wrote like a five thousand word blog post about it afterwards to recap and brain dump what I actually just did, um, and that that really set the stage for what what we've been able to do with this app over the last year and a half. So that let us begin, like any actual new code that we've written after that, has been React and TypeScript embedded in both the. In, embedded in the legacy code base in terms of both where the files are in the structure and where they actually show up in the UI, that gave us a short-term migration path. The long-term migration path was I wanted to ditch this old code base completely. And as Paige said, we, we still had feature requests. We still had to respond to users. We couldn't stop the world and rewrite it all from scratch. And after I finished taking over as, as the new lead for this team, some of the, the business side people had requests for some, some new functionality. And I, I've always enjoyed playing with new toys and especially when I have some justification to do so as part of some other task that I'm working on. And I had never had a reason to play with next.js yet. So I tried setting up a, a next project as just another subfolder in our repository. And I was able to figure out that I can configure the express backend for the existing app to proxy certain requests through to the next server. And I was able to proof of concept that I could stick an iframe in the legacy Angular UI, give it a very specific URL that would then get proxied through to the next app. And now you're showing what appears to be one big page, but actually this chunk of content in the middle is coming from next entirely. And that gave us the long-term migration path. So we started off by building a couple brand new features on top of next. Um, we had them in, you know, like, like, so we had a, a couple tabbed areas in the UI and you click on a certain tab and it was a Angular component 
that shows an iframe and the iframe then shows a whole bunch of next stuff instead and we were able to prove out that we could run both these services at the same time and that the deployment worked and that the build process worked and that you could interact with them back and forth we built out the features we're able to you know start fleshing out the next code base and from there much of this year has been migrating functionality page by page from the angular ui to the next ui and as things stand as we as we talk right now uh, we've actually completed the last of the features and pages that had to be migrated and we're now working on what i refer to as the outer app shell you know your, your classic bootstrap nav header bar authorization um, sign in all that kind of stuff and it's all working um, I, I've actually got on my on my work machine over here. Uh, locally, I've got basically the switch over working with feature flags. Uh, I can flip a switch and the back end starts serving purely new client content. So the old one. And the whole process has allowed us to do things in a very iterative way. We have shipped multiple new features over the last year and a half. We've shipped bug fix releases. Um, and we've been able to continually piece by piece move things over and so it's 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 taken a lot of work uh, i can say that having like i added a tiny tiny feature flag implementation it's just one file with a typescript num of available flags an object saying feature a is on feature b is off and then we just you know check those the rest of the code base but that right there has been huge for being able to do like a patch release that fixes a bug while large feature a is still being developed and, and is not yet ready for release. So I have to ask, because this was something that my team dealt with and we dealt with it in a very different direction than the one that you took, which was putting more things into your existing code base. But when we were migrating our own angular JS application to react, one of the things that we ran up against was that there was a lot of business logic and state that was being held within the Angular application because that was the way Angular wanted to be responsible for it. And we ended up having to make probably four new microservices that were Java Spring applications on the back end that re recreated the logic that was being done by the Angular application so that our new React application that we were migrating to could actually consume the data and then display it similarly to how the, the Angular one was. So did you run into any large things like that where you had to you know, make a new microservice or, or figure out where that business logic that Angular had previously been responsible for had to move to? Not so much. Um, architecturally, the Angular app that I work on is relatively simple. Um, Standard Express backend, some some REST CRUD APIs. There's there is a core of about twenty thousand lines of pure business logic. Um, the client side is like visually, it's a dashboard with with a primary list of items, and you drill down to some some details for each of them. Uh, the client does have a fair amount of logic in being able to filter some of the lists in certain ways. And there was some kind of complex code on the client side 
to take the API structures that we were receiving from the back end and reformat them in a way that made it easier to iterate and, and display the items on the client side. Uh, but I wouldn't necessarily say that the client had a lot of business logic in it to begin with, per se. The thing that, um, with, with things like that, um, there's two, there's two things that I always found like were the hardest things. One of them is the, you know, while it's things are in this transitional state, especially when it's between one framework or another, you get this real degradation of the user experience at the boundary because the components of the old system work differently from the new ones or look different or th like that's mo that's visible and also that you suddenly have to load two application bundles where you used to have one and the other thing is is that whenever you get onto these oh we'll just recreate the application but in react it's like yes but what is the application because in a lot of cases, our biggest problem has been that, that we have had, um, you know, the business say, oh, well, we want it to, to be behave the same as the old one did and have all the same features. And then you ask, okay, what are those features? And they're like, we don't know, but it has to be the same. <laughs> so how, how, how have you gone about like, like really doing the archaeology work of like venturing <laughs> venturing into the abandoned temples of <laughs> you know angular one and figuring out what the the secrets of the ancients were well that that's that's a great thing especially in my case because i i came into this project cold um it was you know it started in, in like 2017 and the previous team lead had done most of the development himself now to be fair it was very consistently structured. Like as soon as you learned what the naming schemes and the, and the organizational patterns were, uh, pretty straightforward to find any given file or where some, some at least the client side code was implemented. Uh, but it took me months to try to to try to learn most of the existing code base in the first place. And even then, I, I would frequently scratch my head. It's like, okay, I sort of see what it's doing, but I don't know why it's it's doing that um so to, so to your, your point about carrying over exact existing functionality um this application started off as kind of an internal prototype and it was to some extent your classic prototype pushed into production beyond its real capabilities kind of thing and so there were various experimental features or things that someone had asked the, the lead dev to add two years ago, and then they got, no one really cared about them anymore. And so as we were starting to seriously look at what pieces need to be migrated, I was going back to our, our business specialists and saying, okay, do we really need feature X? Because if we don't, I'm just not going to migrate that at all. In fact, can I just like, turn that off in our UI right now so that no one even no one uses it whatsoever. Um, but other places it's involved a lot of tracing the data flow, looking through the Git history, um, which is a thing that I'm very, very, I don't know if about passionate about is the right word. I feel strongly about good Git history, okay? Um, lots of tracing through and figuring out what is this really meant for and how does it interact with the rest of the system? 
Mark, yeah. I feel like we worked on the same team because all the things that you're describing about this POC that went into production that probably shouldn't have been is very much what the, the application that I worked on was about as well. I, I suspect a lot of people could sympathize with that. You're, but you sound like you're in a fairly blessed position. My experience was that whenever we fixed a bug, we would get 50 complaints on Trustpilot because that bug was um, central to some user's work workflow. Oh, there is a great um, phrase that I've run across. It's called Hiram's Law. And it is that any widely used system there's going to be somebody who depends on every bit of observable behavior, regardless of whether that was meant to be part of your public API or not. <laughs> oh, so many times. Uh, former company of ours, we actually publicized our API for consumption, uh, which I can tell you that's its own set of nightmares, uh, unrelated to what we're talking about. but people use the most obscure feature that you never expected to make it into your public API, but they find it. And when you turn it off, they, uh, they're very unhappy with you, yeah. to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> so the way that we addressed it for our application was we needed, we definitely needed to maintain a lot of the existing functionality. But one thing that we were clear about with our user base, and it, this was an internal application, so we had a lot more control and a lot less users who were depending on our system. But we were clear with them that we were doing an upgrade. So they would see things like one on one page, you'd see a nav bar that was black. And on another page, you'd see a nav bar that was white because we were redesigning the application as we were rebuilding it in React. So they knew that stuff was going on and different pages would look and interact slightly differently. But the main goal was that we could keep giving them new features and new functionality and they could keep doing their jobs, which was what they needed our tool to be able to do. So we didn't have quite as many constraints as somebody who's you know working on a public facing or a consumer focused website for sure um and we did go through and find some some functionality that with the help of google analytics told us that we had spent a long time on these features and nobody actually ever used them some great filtering stuff that we were able to just not port over but it was definitely there were a lot of painful points and a lot of things that we had to kind of build out the back end for at first and then try to figure out how to extract the information from the front end so that it was then dependent on the back end and then hook the other front end into it as well. So it was it was a good two plus years, I would say, before we were really mostly done with the migration. <laughs> it was a long process. I think that brings up a really good question, which is in uh, your old AngularJS world, you didn't have a true state manager. You had your service layer. You would mm -hmm. build everything to there. Your, hopefully your API took care of most things, but you'd create all the singleton services. And then as we're migrating to React, we start exploring new options, Redux, Flux, uh, the context API, uh, Apollo, if you're a GraphQL user. So uh, as you both have been through these massive migrations, what are some of the ways that y'all manage to either maintain state, shift state, or share state? Um, cookies. 
cookies were still a thing that we used for signing our users in and out of our application because there was single sign-on across the com- or across the company and across the applications. So the cookies would luckily just share space in the browser and be accessible from both of our applications. Um, that was a lot of the additional microservices that we added to recreate what the Angular application was handling in state before. We just transferred to backend services so that we could get it for both the Angular or the React application on the front end. And we started at the time when Redux was really rising to power. So we started using Redux and later on decided that probably context would have been enough because we it turned out that we really didn't have that much state beyond, you know, some initial user login information that really needed to be persisted across the application. Probably context would have suited our needs for the amount because we had so much dynamic information that trying to store it or keep a running log of it somewhere probably wasn't as useful as we initially thought it was going to be. And I can actually echo almost the same thing. the application that I work on is, it's not terribly complicated flow-wise. I mean, like I said, it's basically a couple dashboards and some drill down pages. And the only real shared data is is the user auth. And I, I, I noted that when I was first starting to kind of think through the migration. And so as we began to build out the first new features on top of Next, I actually deliberately decided I am not going to bring Redux into this because I don't think it's the right tool for this job. And (laughs) in some ways, it actually almost became like me attempting to make a a statement to myself, like, yes, I maintain Redux, but I don't have to drag it everywhere with me. Um, Now, I was going to ask how you were dealing with that existential (laughs) crisis at that point. Well, let me, let me actually clarify this a bit though. So I, like I said, the, um, the, the first really big feature we built on top of Next was kind of like a a table-based, like almost like a, an Excel knockoff data editor. You got some columns and rows and cells, and you're supposed to be able to add new entries and save them and whatnot. And that did have some reasonably complex logic in there. I actually installed our Redux toolkit package which lets you write Redux reducers and, and everything in a much simpler way. But I used that in combination with the React use reducer hook. So I just had a single use reducer in the root component for this new feature. I generated that reducer with Redux toolkits create slice function because I wanted to have a complicated reducer that, it, that was well TypeScript type and I wanted to minimize the amount of like immutable update code that I had to write, but there was no need to have a Redux store in that particular page. And it was only after we began migrating a couple of the other pages that I finally felt we'd reached a level of complexity that now it justified actually adding a Redux store to the app. Plus I was was noting that I really wanted to be able to look to better debug what the data was and how it was changing over time. And that's literally why Redux was created in the first place. So then I finally set up a Redux store for the next app for for the couple of the other pages. And then I back went back and retrofitted things 
um, we had actually kind of somewhat unintentionally written that first feature to where it was actually creating the equivalent of bound action creators in the root component and then just passing them down as props all the way through. And so it was actually really easy to go from having a use reducer hook in that root component and passing down the reducer dispatch to grabbing dispatch off a Redux store and passing it down instead. And none of the other components actually knew that anything was changing. Um, that was not a deliberate choice, but it actually worked out very well. So now we have a Redux store set up. And as we've been finishing these last phases of the migration and like swapping out some of the app shell and whatnot, that's actually paying off very nicely. Um, but I, I totally agree with what Paige said. Like you use the right tools for the job. You figure out what your actual constraints are and what problems you're trying to solve and pick whatever best suits that situation. Yeah, and especially like for us, especially with this sort of interoperation between things running different frameworks, like I sort of very early on made the continuingly controversial decision of um, putting my foot down and saying no global client state. <laughs> None of it. Uh, if it's important, if it's important, it shouldn't disappear on page refresh, mm -hmm. um, which means everything, you know, every, every most, a lot of things were in the URL and, you know, URLs are underutilized and very powerful things that sort of very nicely have very nice um, UI for the user in terms of like being able to use the, the browser history to navigate their app history. But we also had a lot of things that were just safe. You know, if, if this was really important data that the user was changing, um, we would actually save it in the back end and do it all through. Like we, we all our API was GraphQL. So we used Apollo client and we used mutations and the Apollo cache and so on. But the Apollo cache would only be updated as the result of updating something on the server. So, so this idea was like, and, and I, especially at the beginning when I was still trying to teach developers how to do that, I would go through the app and press refresh and see if it rendered the same thing after refresh. <laughs> That's a great I'm testing like, strategy. I'm like, oh no, I refreshed and it took me to another page. <laughs> this pull request isn't getting merged. <laughs> That's a great strategy. Nice. <laughs> but that's a we were that last project uh jay and i were just on a project together and uh literally that was one of the features i was looking for on a couple of the specific pages like is this behaving exactly can i send this url out to this random person uh to sell them that they want to use this product or want to pay for attending uh this event and it's like it's so true like urls are underutilized give give, give people a chance <laughs> It's also interesting, uh, going back to something Mark was talking about earlier, is use reducer and hooks, because uh, we've been talking about enterprise modernizing React applications and kind of tying back to that for a minute. The in, in React components, we have global state, of course, but we also have local state. And Jay and a few of our other architects were having a really fun conversation earlier this afternoon where uh, we were talking about how to manage local state in components, especially when you start having um, multiple uh, different facets that all get updated in tandem. Um, U state has pushed us away from the old uh, 
uh, state object and said, hey, actually use this, instead of using the global set state operation and modifying just the pieces you want, uh, separate your variables into these things and then they'll be updated uh, globally together. And then we started talking about Apollo and its state manager and how, uh, I'm going to quote Jay, uh, tired of typing, not loading and not error, but has data. <laughs> Uh, in an if statement, uh, you know, the, all these patterns that we see. So what are maybe some some ways y'all have kind of explored data management in that way at the local level, since we've talked like cookies globally, but locally, what do we do? Okay, I, I need, I, I like sharing some of the nifty and or stupid hacks that I've pulled off. And this one qualifies on multiple levels. So the existing Angular app had a, as part of its de item details page, you could click edit and then it had a whole bunch of form fields for modifying the item, hit save, save it back to the server. And Angular 1 works by tracking actual mutations to existing objects. And then it's change detection kicks in and it redraws the UI. The React world generally works with immutable updates. You're never supposed to mutate existing data. You're always supposed to copy everything. And these are two very different paradigms. Well, one of the first features that I added in React inside the legacy Angular code base was a subform in that page that was supposed to make changes to a specific nested field. It was like the whole the whole page let you edit the, the item, but there was like this one additional array of child items that we now needed a UI to modify. And this was actually, I think, the first real feature I added to this code base after joining the team. And so, of course, I was doing it in React and helping to prove that I could stick some React components inside the legacy UI. Well, if the paradigm is you click the edit button in the legacy section of the UI, number one, the React component needs to know, here's the data and that I'm now editing. But if all the edits to the data inside that React component are done immutably, how do you get that back out from React land to Angular land to know that the Angular one can actually save it? Um, so I did a couple things. Number one, all the React in Angular interop was done with a nifty library that I found called React to Angular. You write a React component, you wrap it up in an Angular compatible component definition, and you render a new tag in your Angular template, and you actually pass data from an Angular template into the React component as props, including injection of angular services as props so i was able to pass through the data item and a you know is editing flag where this went off the rails um so once the item was inside the react component you could make all your edits and add modify delete items in its array that updates the use reducer the react component knows it has changes how do you get those back out to angular land you do something that you absolutely should not ever do. You mutate the props because the prop is actually the mutable variable from Angular land. So I had a use layout effect hook that looked for changes in the data from the reducer. 
and then proceeded to assign the new immutably updated array back into the item prop from the angular land and i left a giant this is a hack please never do this comment on top but the, but the key thing there is knowing the rules of how both frameworks behave so that you know even though what, what you're doing here is wrong conceptually this is actually the right approach technically to solve this one exact problem i love that <laughs> Mark, you're just like light years ahead of where myself and my team were and probably still are in the way that you approach this. So I, I do actually want to write a follow-up to the other blog post. I, I wrote I wrote that post about how I how I mangled create React app just like a, a month or two after I did it. So it's been like a, a, over a year's worth of additional uh, development and effort. And I've been wanting to write another blog post about like the whole the whole next iframe migration and all that stuff. Uh, I've had a lot of Redux maintainer-ish things to do and it keeps getting pushed to the back of the list. I, I, would I really want to sit down and write that post maybe like towards Christmas break or something because I, I like sharing things that I've learned. Um, some of it's a natural tendency to show off, but it's also if I had to learn all this stuff the hard way, someone else can benefit from what I did. And you know, there probably aren't that many people doing an Angular to React migration still these days, but the text, the techniques might be useful for somebody. Yeah, you you might be surprised. <laughs> and even if they aren't doing it, those techniques are definitely going to be valuable in some way. I, I remember one of our teams really getting into these kind of techniques and trying to render React components inside of Angular. Um, and I believe I believe eventually they gave up. Um, it was it was considered it was just faster to rewrite it. It was faster to rewrite the whole page rather than get one part of it working um, in this in inside the boundary. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I, I think sometimes it's it's always something to keep in mind. Like you can always make it work, but at what point is it just faster to do the full rewrite? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the backbone app that I've been working on, uh, we we had been doing a similar in place, you know, sticking React in backbone for new features for a couple of years. We finally got approval to really push that through all the way in 2019. We spent the first few months of that of 2019 continuing on that same path. And then one of my coworkers suggested, why, why don't we just try doing a Greenfield version of the client instead? And, and it turned out that was a lot faster because you didn't have to worry about all these interop issues. You could look at the legacy code and say, "Okay, I just I just need to do that exact same behavior, but from scratch in React." So there never is a single answer. It's looking at what your constraints are, your delivery timelines, the the difficulty, and and picking some course that actually works out. That's that's kind of what we ended up doing too. Was we looked at if it was possible to upgrade Angular one to two with any if we would gain any benefit in terms of how long it would take. And it really wasn't at that point. So we started looking at how at the various different screens that we had and how much state or 
how easy would it be to migrate them over and just rewrite them completely? And that's what we ended up doing is we had two apps that were running side by side, one in Angular, one in React, and they would just proxy back and forth between the two, depending on which page the users needed to go to. And we built those microservices to give them the information they needed. So they became a lot less reliant on internal business logic and state and a lot more reliant on backend services and databases and somebody else crunching the numbers and then just giving them what they needed to display. These are all really awesome approaches. And I think they're definitely ones that others will benefit from hearing. Um, and if it's not an Angular to a React migration. It might be a, a Vue to React, React to Vue, uh, React to Angular again. <laughs> You know, we might. Who knows what direction we're all going in? Well, web components. I was just going to say, spell, spell. Throw that in there. Or so many great options out there. Well, um, that's it for today's episode of uh, the Modern Web Podcast. Um, thank you all for for listening. Um, it's been a real pleasure having Paige and Mark with us today. Um, you can find Paige again on Twitter at pnidri or p n i e d r i. Uh, you can find Mark at Acemark, and that's A-C-E-M-A-R-K-E. And then we also have myself and Jay. Uh, Jay, you can find her at uh, D-U-L-C-E-D-E-J-A-E. And uh, I'm uh, Dustin S. Goodman on Twitter. Hopefully y'all can spell that one. Uh, <laughs> all right, fine. D-U-S-T-I-N-S-T-O-O-D-M-A-N. Yeah, we can up with that. But um. Thank you both. And like always on these episodes, the conversation doesn't end when the when the podcast ends. It continues into the ethos. So please connect out. Reach out to us on Twitter. We'd love to continue. Thank you again to our sponsor, Harmon, uh, for today. And thank you, Paige and Mark, for joining us and sharing your awesome and amazing stories with us. This podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. Cause we got a show for you